Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining me. My name is Kathy Kaler, and I'm the host of Discam Medical Monday, and I'll be your host for the next hour. So uh, hopefully you'll stay tuned. We're talking today about stress, and uh, my guest, you'll know him well when I tell you who he is, but uh, we've, we've been doing a serial, you know, different uh, parts about stress. Do you know that South Africa is the second most stressed country in the world? And there are certain factors that influence stress. One is when you feel that you don't have any control of the environment around you. Two is when you are not seeing justice done. Three is when you're working but there's no actual reward. Four is when you feel that you're living in an unjust society. And uh, those are really the main stress factors. Now, if you bring that back to our lives here in in South Africa, every single person is stressed. And it's not a matter of getting away from stress or doing away with stress because that's not possible. What we need to learn to do is understand stress so that we can manage it better. And uh, I'd like to welcome Richard Sutton. Hi, Kath. How are you? Uh, fantastic. But what a great summary. I mean, <laughs> can, I, can I let you take on the, no, you the, the rest of the show? <laughs> you, you amazing, amazing. Stay right there. Uh, Richard is a neurovascular practitioner and a health management expert. You can find out more about him, um, you know, find out what he does at, uh, at his website, suttonhealth.co.za. Yeah, right. yeah. You so, looked a little worried there for a minute. No, I don't know. I think there, there was one occasion where you gave someone else's website. Really? I just, yeah, I think so. I think so. It was a, it was a long worry. But anyway, so we're we back on track. All right. Okay. So yes, as you mentioned, so this is uh, this is the third installment of the stress series, and what what the previous sessions and, and talks have, have covered is principally awareness, just understanding stress better. I also introduced the concept of reappraisal, seeing stress in a different light, and how it can affect you your on a perf- of it. exactly perception, positive perception of stress, and how it can enhance your performance. It can also buffer the adverse effects of stress. I also, in the last show, revealed the power of pro-social behavior. When I say pro-social behavior, I'm referring to charity, caring, supportive communication, compassion. Hugs, hugs. and pray. <laughs> I mean, who ever knew? Who, who would have thought? So, you know, these fundamentals to, to our society are, are so health-promoting. And so I introduced how these pro-social behaviors uh, buffer the effects of stress through something called an oxytocin pathway. So they actually trigger the release of a particular molecule and hormone that has a, a very protective effect on our biology and on on our brains and, and behavioral states. Today's, today's show it really focuses on what everyone asks me all the time, and there's how do you turn stress off? If you stress, how do you turn off that state of crises? Actually, the only way is to remove yourself from the situation or go and so live in the Bahamas. Conceptually, that's, that's a good way of, of reducing stress, but it's not practical for many or, if, in fact, for everyone. And, and in the Bahamas, you're still going to have an issue, you know, whether it's a hurricane or whether you, there's going to be High stress. High tide, low tide. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Not in exactly. control. All right. So there, there's certainly going to be issues wherever you go. You can't run from stress. You really have to deal with it and you have to reappraise it. And also what you do, you, you also don't want to run from stress because all our success in life, it, it's roots and origins are certainly derived from stress. So the stress is an important factor in terms of overcoming challenging situations and, and actually elevating us on a, a personal level, you know, on where, whether it be physical, cognitive, behavioral, or so on. 
So to get back to how to turn the stress off, you know, how to turn stress off or how to shut down that feeling, that, that, that angst and that, that experience that you're going through, you know, most people think that it's some external factor that, that's going to turn it off, you know, like a pill or a botanical or, you know, something that you can it's take. Not, it's a lifestyle change. It, exactly. You know, as, as, as mentioned in the previous narratives is that it's a step-by-step process, you know, changing your perception, changing your behaviors of the, of the fundamental and also understanding what you're dealing with is also critical. Okay, can I just mention to our listeners, if you would like to access part one and part two of stress that uh, that Richard has given us all this information, then please access it via chaifm.com, go to podcasts and uh, click on Discam Medical Monday. You'll find them all there. Alternatively, you can also go to uh, satinhealth.co.za. You'll find the podcasts there as well as uh, other podcasts that we've done on other topics. Yes. Um, all, sleep. All, sleep. Salmon. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee. <laughs> Fantastic. There's a, there's a well, lot let's, of let's, let's get back all to right. stress. So, so stress resilience, how is it best achieved? It's best achieved by shutting down the stress response as rapidly as possible. So when you don't need to be stressed, shut it down. That's the message. And normally stress, or, or certainly like the whole biological state of stress, is governed by something called a negative feedback loop. So your stress hormones elevate in response to a perceived situational threat and they're there to help us adapt, cope, over, overcome the situation. And once that threat has been removed or the situation has stabilized, you know, there's this negative feedback loop where they get shut down, you know, accordingly. So the brain shuts them down in response to their rising levels, principally. Now, if your stress has been chronic, so it's been ongoing, it's been severe, eventually what happens is your body becomes desensitized within the context of this negative feedback loop. So instead of the brain detecting higher concentrations of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, now what's happening is it's actually there's a failure in the ability to detect these concentrations of hormones and obviously a, a corruption in its ability to shut them down. So that's a corrupted negative feedback loop. Now, what this does is it exposes the brain to to excessive cortisol. And excessive cortisol in the brain is exceptionally damaging. And the area that gets particularly damaged is an area called the hippocampus, which is responsible for shutting down the stress response and regulating uh, your stress hormone concentrations. But in exposure or through exposure to excessive amounts of um, cortisol and other stress hormones, this area becomes very damaged, very corrupted, and the whole negative feedback loop that is normally kind of very robust when we're younger becomes, uh, you know, less and less effective as we get older, becomes damaged to the extent that we live in a state of crisis, live in a state of stress, despite the fact that there is no stress in our lives. All right, before we go on, Richard, because I just don't want to, lo- I don't, I don't want to get lost. Absolutely. Okay. Is there a stress barometer? Can you give us a stress barometer? So that we can establish for ourselves how far we are stressed, right? Because I might feel very, very stressed, but my body might might not be under stress. The, so the, the, the biggest, the most effective so barometer is a, is a measure of cortisol. So whether you do salivary cortisol through various intervals in the day, um, you know, you get there's certain tests that you can do. Go to your doctor, ask them to do salivary cortisol, or you can even do blood cortisol or combination of the two. So that that's one of the most effective ways to determine whether you're in a state of stress or not. But what you have to understand is that prolonged periods of stress also corrupt cortisol in, in, in so much as you, you fail to produce cortisol. Um, your whole cortisol axis gets corrupted to such an extent that your immune system gets dysregulated because your adrenal glands are so exhausted 
exhausted from being stressed for so uh, long, you know, for extensive periods of time. That's a danger when stress becomes normal. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so it's a very, very finely calibrated system and axes, and uh, we must respect that. You know, too much stress, uh, uh, not a good thing. Too little stress, not a good thing. Stress hormones in at the right time, at the right place, are exceptionally health-promoting. Excessive amounts are very destructive. But... There is a system that's charged with shutting down the stress axes. So you've got this negative feedback loop where high levels of stress hormones will uh, result in the brain shutting off the, you know, the stress hormone production line. But there is another system that gets involved, and that system is known as the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is almost involved in every Bio- anything of biological relevance the vagus nerve is involved in and it happens to be literally one of the most influential nerves of the body and I brought it up in one of the gut shows I'm telling you this was it was absolutely mind blowing to me how the bacteria in the, the digestive tract communicate with the vagus nerve to the brain and actually can interface right, uh, so through if, chemical if messages. I remember correctly what you had said is that this vagus nerve is the nerve that goes from your gut to your brain some of the branches are in the gut, absolutely. Right. And it's how what you eat literally has an impact on your mental health. It's well the bacterial I mean, colonies yeah, yeah. the bacterial colonies and the bacterial colonies influence can influence your mental health through a variety of channels. One is through this interaction with the vagus nerve. But but funny you know, just to, to get back to the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve basically exits the brain just behind the ear. So it's not part of the spinal cord at all. And it runs in front of the throat and then it goes into the chest cavity and then literally just the thousands of branches that it's almost like a delta when it hits the Amazing, diaphragmatic okay. area. So it's it's a most incredible nerve. And it, its role is really to interface the brain and the body. So it's a major communication highway between the brain and the body. And most of the communication actually comes from the 80% of the communication, you know, within the context of the vagus nerve is from the body to the brain, not the brain to the body, which is quite interesting. But one of its best recognized attributes is that of calming the body following the fight-to-flight state induced by adrenaline. So when we get in this hyper-aroused state, the vagus nerve kicks in to create a state of balance and a state of order following when the perceived threat has been removed. Now, researchers have known for for um, for decades now that the stronger one's vagal tone, so the more effective one's vagus nerve is, you know, in our functionality, which is measured by an ECG, by the way. So that's why when we go for any major medical, they're going to do an ECG and will determine the integrity of the vagus nerve. Hmm. The quicker the body can normalize from a perceived threat, a stressful event, or an abnormal state. So the stronger your tone, the quicker you can adapt. And this explains why you can get two people exposed to the exact same stress. One person, yeah, a few minutes later, they're fine. The next person, several weeks later, are still, you know, in, in the state of, yeah. of, of angst and anxiety and, and, and distress. So, you know, that, the vagus nerve really is the determining, determining factor here. Um, we also know that low vagal tone is, is associated with compromised um, health state. So it's one of the most effective measures of determining your health integrity is vagal tone. Low vagal tone, and you generally find specifically the cardiovascular immune systems can, can become exceptionally compromised. But this is where it's How do you fix getting that. Well, this is what the, the uh, whole this is narrative what, uh, is about. All right, yeah. so we, uh, okay, we're <laughs> exactly. going to explain. Now we're going to be fixing it. Okay. Okay, so what's interesting about the vagus nerve, so one, it's charged with the role of shutting down the stress response. That's its, that's one of its major jobs, is that when we get aroused or when we get stressed, the vagus nerve kicks in and shuts it down, okay, restores the state of biological balance. But two, it has a very influential and impactful um, relationship with our immune system and specifically inflammation in the body. 
And we know that stress is a trigger in inflammatory states, and inflammatory states are probably the leading cause of disease and disability today. So most diseases have their origins and roots in inflammation, and the vagus nerve is the controlling element within the context of inflammation. So this is how powerful it is. And anything that is charged with such an important role, um, you know, we, it would not have one mechanism. It has multiple mechanisms by which can control inflammation. So it has actually three ways in which it controls inflammation in the body. The first is, is known as the splenic sympathetic, uh, sympathetic anti-inflammatory pathway. Uh, the second is the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And the interesting thing about the vagus nerve, in certain situations where it has to, it can actually elevate cortisol. So it's one of the, the primary systems that shuts down cortisol production, but in certain states can actually elevate cortisol. And how the vagus nerve elevates cortisol in a different way to a normal stressful event is when, when our cortisol levels rise in response to stress, it's off, off the perception of something that's going to happen to us, the perception of a scenario, perception of a state. When the vagus nerve elevates cortisol, it's when something real has happened to the body. So whether you've got a vir- an infection or whether you have, you're exercising, that's the difference is when there's something real that's in the body, the vagus nerve can activate uh, or elevate cortisol, but not off the perception of a state or situation so that's impending. Isn't it interesting that the body can determine between what we are perceiving and what is reality? Very much so. It, it's so it's, it's so incredible. It just it blows my mind every day, and I'm involved with this every day. So there's actually there's a particular authority on the vagus nerve. His, his name is Kevin Tracy, Dr. Kevin Tracy. He's a professor of neurosurgery and molecular medicine. And um, his first article on the vagus nerve was published in the journal Nature in about 2002. And he discovered that the way the vagus nerve controls inflammation is communication to the spleen. Okay, So the spleen fundamentally is a blood filter. It's an immune regulator. That's what the spleen does. Now, what the vagus nerve does is that through electrical channels or, or um, you know neurological channels, it signals Specialized immune cells, they're called T cells, to release a chemical messenger. It's called acetylcholine. So here, here you've got the vagus nerve signaling the spleen to activate certain cells within the spleen to release a certain chemical. And this chemical then activates other cells called macrophages to shut down the production of the main inflammatory chemical. So what we're seeing is the vagus nerve getting involved, activating the spleen through electrical channels. It then signals one type of immune cell to produce a chemical. That chemical then triggers another immune cell to stop the production of this inflammatory trigger. It's a chain reaction, but it's the master regulator, and that chemical happens to be TNF-alpha. So most inflammatory conditions, most inflammatory states are linked to TNF-alpha. And elevations or dysregulation of TNF-alpha is typically associated with with most stress-related diseases. So when there's elevation or spikes in TNF-alpha, you're likely to develop, well, you're certainly predisposed to dementia, Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety, many cancers, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory disorders of the digestive system, and the list goes on and on and on. These are all through spikes in TNF-alpha. put depression in there? Depression was in there. Oh, it was there. And what ha- you know, the master regulator of this chemical happens to be the vagus nerve, would you believe? Hmm. Now, <clears throat> you know, so if the vagus nerve is working optimally, um, you know, it's, it's normal tone, normal function, you can keep the system in a state of balance, irrespective of the stresses that you're facing. But when vagal tone becomes weak and corrupted and you've been stressed for long periods of time, it just gets harder and harder and harder to keep the integrity going. And this is where you don't keep inflammation in check. And this is why so many chronically stressed states are associated with autoimmune diseases or the development of uh, pre-autoimmune states like allergies and asthmas and things like that. Now, just talking, just bringing the, the, the vagus nerve into the context of stress. 
So there was a, a large, uh, huge study. It was a 2040 study by a team of French researchers. And <clears throat> what they looked at was the relationship between vagal tone, so strength of this nerve and the system, cortisol levels, adrenaline levels, inflammatory cells, specifically this TNF-alpha, this bad inflammatory molecule, and digestive diseases. So they looked at this interrelationship. And the study involved 73 people, and they divided the 73 people into three groups. So they had a healthy con control group. Everyone was perfect, in perfect health, not overly stressed, and they looked at those as the benchmark. They then had a group suffering with Crohn's disease, and they then had a group suffering with IBS. And irritable what bowel syndrome. Exactly, irritable bowel syndrome. They then did extensive examination. So they looked at salivary cortisol at various intervals throughout the day. They looked at blood cortisol levels. They looked at adrenaline, noradrenaline levels. And they looked at the major inflammatory markers. And then they performed an ECG to determine vagal tone. And they put all of this information together. So what they found was those in the control group with the highest vagal tone, those in the control group that had the strongest vagal activity, they had the lowest levels of cortisol at the right time of the day, which is at night. So their cortisol like literally plummeted at night, which facilitated health and facilitated good sleep and so on. Now, what they found was there, there was an inverse relationship in the IBS patients. So basically, the lower the vagal tone, the worse the IBS symptoms, and the higher the levels of adrenaline in the body. But it was exclusive. The ad high adrenaline and low vagal tone was exclusive to the IBS patients, the ir irritable mm -hmm. bowel patients. They then looked at the Crohn's sufferers. And what they did is, is looked at all these markers, and they found that there was an inverse relationship between vagal tone and inflammatory markers. Okay, this is where it starts getting interesting. So they found that those individuals who suffer from Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory digestive disease of the gut, when they had low vagal tone, their symptoms were worse and their inflammatory markers were higher. But they didn't have high adrenaline. They didn't, you know, it's, every single category was almost very unique in its profile. It's so interesting because I thought that Crohn's disease was actually genetic. Uh, it, all diseases can be genetically inherited. Oh, it's more you know, than it's a genetic immune dysfunction. Yeah, so they say they say from a genetic perspective, it, it depends. But we're around fifteen twenty five percent of diseases. There's a, a degree of genetic inheritance. So uh, I wouldn't rely heavily on that. Seventy five percent of the diseases that you you could be exposed to or could incur are, are based on environment and lifestyle and and certain habits and behaviours. So and stress is one of the biggest drivers in in the manifestation of disease. You have to understand. Okay, so so here we. Can now, what we can extrapolate from this, this is, this is the, like the real crux of the study, is what the relevance was. So basically, vagal tone translates to balance. So in healthy subject, high vagal tone maximizes biological rhythms. Every, every hormone is released at the right time. The, the system works optimally, high vagal tone. That's, that's what it does in healthy individuals. In IBS sufferers, high vagal uh, tone will blunt the adrenal response, so lower adrenaline in response to IBS. Now, you have to understand that adrenaline shuts down blood supply to the digestive tract to the extent of 400%. It also reduces motility of the digestive tract. Right, so it stops moving with no blood. Flight. It, now is not the time that the body's going to be digesting food. But with high vagal tone, you're going to shut down the adrenal axes, and you, it will restore the IBS symptoms to a, a more normalized state. We're also seeing here in Crohn's patients, higher vagal tone will regulate uh, TNF-alpha, and Crohn's is an inflammatory disorder. 
So where it's weak is in, in the infl- in, with, with regards to the inflammation markers, and higher vagal tone will facilitate improvement in, in those markers. But, you know, it's not, you know, this, I've just given one study on, on stress and vagal tone and how, it, how adaptable, you know, the, the vagus nerve is. Basically, it's, its job is biological balance, biological integrity, shutting down the stress response. It is highly versatile. It's not a one, a one-stop shop. I mean, it's not, it is a one-stop shop. It's not a, a, you know, just one function, one role, you know, and that's it. And there's actually been a, a lot of research on vagal stimulation as a means of, of treating certain diseases, specifically autoimmune diseases. So interesting. There was a 2016 study published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that showed that vagal nerve activation through a stimulator, it's like a pacemaker that they put on the throat, uh, within the throat, um, could successfully treat rheumatoid arthritis. And, and rheumatoid arthritis is very obstinate in, in, with, with regards to certain medications and certain treatments. And that would be related to the TNF-alpha? Uh, lowering of TNF. TNF alpha and TNF alpha is uh, exactly amazing memory there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, there was also in the same year, 2016, there was a, fr- a French research- researchers discovered that vagus nerve stimulation could be used to successfully manage Crohn's disease and even result in remission. Which is uh, quite a life right? change, absolutely. Uh, there, there was a 25-year review of the literature um, uh, on neurological disorders, neuro- neurological states, and the relationship to the vagus nerve. And it was published in the, the journal Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews, which happens to be my favorite journal. They just always capture uh, some some great uh, data, and it showed that ongoing vagus nerve stimulation is successful in improving symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and in healthy individuals, you know, functioning individuals without any disease. These profiles, it enhances memory and cognitions to to a degree that is almost unparalleled. So these are the positive attributes linked to the vagus nerve. But within the context of our discussion today, you know, we're using the vagus nerve as a means by which we can override the stress uh, response or the biological effects of stress and like literally shut it down, restore uh, yourself to a state of calm and balance and, and biological integrity. My name's Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me for the Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host until 11 o'clock this morning. My guest is Richard Sutton. He is a neurovascular practitioner and a health management expert. If you want to find out more about him, you can get to his website, which is Sutton Health, S-U-T-T-O-N, health.co.za. And we're talking about stress. This is part three of a series that we're doing on stress. And uh, if you've got any questions, if you've got any comments, join the conversation. You know, we like to have the conversation backwards and forwards. So how do you get in touch? Well, you can send us a text message on 34519. You can also send us a WhatsApp number or a WhatsApp message on 061-895-1019. Okay, that's 061-895-1019. And uh, I'm sure that Richard would be happy to address any of your questions or comments. Right, Richard. Absolutely. Look forward. <laughs> now, listen, I just need to tell you something about Richard, is that he doesn't take on new clients. Um, he, yeah, so this is a way that you can access the expertise of this man. And, uh, yeah, if you've got any questions, do it. 34519 or 061-895-1019. We'll be right back. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Thank you for joining us. It is uh, 10.24. You're on Discam Medical Monday on 101.9 High FM. My name is Kathy Kayla. I'll be yours until 11 o'clock this morning. My guest is neurovascular practitioner and health management expert, 
Richard Sutton. Now, uh, Richard has managed, he has managed the Chinese team, the Chinese Olympic team, Beijing, 2000 win. And eight. 2008, they actually walked away. The champions of that uh, of that yeah. Olympics. That certainly did. Yep, and uh, he, the guy knows what he's talking about, and is always cutting edge information. As you can hear, a lot of these studies, a lot of the information that he's dealing with, is really, really cutting edge. In fact, it's not even at the point of impl- implementation. These are all studies that are being done. So it's giving you a heads up, so that you can understand it better. Have that conversation with your health management expert, right? Absolutely. But if you understand it, then you become a partner in that conversation rather than somebody writing out a script and saying, well, here you go, take those, call me in the morning. Because you have to take responsibility for your own So well put. It's very, very well put. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, let's get back to it. So we're talking about about the the vagus vagus nerve. nerve. We know that it's the mechanism by which we shut down stress. We know its importance in inflammation. So the question is, how do we stimulate it? How do we activate it? How do we access the vagus nerve? How do we look after it? How do we look after it? So there's actually numerous uh, modalities, uh, therapies, activities that we can incorporate into our lives. Very simple. Um, A lot of the alternate therapies actually stimulate the vagus nerve. So when I say alternate therapies like reflexology, uh, acupuncture, exactly, pressure point therapies. Um, So these these are activities that actually, their basis is actually within vagal stimulation. And this is what makes them so effective. So if you do, you know, see, do EFT tapping or if you uh, do see a reflexologist, it's, it's highly beneficial in managing stress through activation of the vagus nerve. But what I'm going to do is uh, I'm actually going to bring up, uh, you know, I'm going to be talking about some, some uh, uh, stimulators that have strong, strong evidence in terms of, of uh, the science behind the vagus nerve activation and the restoration of biological balance. And this includes visceral manipulation, swimming, yoga, cold facial immersion, Control breathing exercises and massage. What's visceral manipulation? This is basically the ability to manipulate organs. Um, it's an osteopathic uh, modality. Um, I'm going to expound on it in the next show. Um, that's that's uh, part oh, of the we're narrative. Getting him back, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no ways I could fit it fit it all in. But the the place I'd like to start is breathing. And the reason why is you don't need any equipment. You don't need to go to anyone. You don't need to take major time out your day. Um, but yet, breathing can be one of the most powerful means by which we can channel and manage manage stress. So how do we do it right? Well, that's the, that's the question. We have to go into understanding breathing first before we can uh, create a prescription or a prescriptive model. So there's there's been countless studies showing that con- slow, controlled breathing exercise increases vagal tone, it increases parasympathetic activity, like all organs in the body re- return to normal motility, everyone functions optimally in response to deep breathing exercises. We also know from the literature that it lowers stress hormones. So both cortisol and adrenaline are lowered by deep breathing exercises. Now, Anything that has such a profound effect on the body never operates through one mechanism, like the vagus nerve. It doesn't operate through one pathway. It operates through three. And breathing actually operates through two. Um, the first is, is a system, or it's actually three, but the first is, is through something called baroreceptors. Now, baroreceptors are super specialized pressure gauges, and they're located in our arterial walls, specifically the aortic arch and carotid sinus. Okay, just explain where in the body that is. So in and around the heart and throat area. Okay. okay so that, that's specifically where they are. And basically what they, their job is to take rises in blood pressure. And as there's a rise in blood pressure, they then activate the vagus nerve, and the act- vagus nerve then creates a state of biological calm and, in a sense, lowers heart rate, lowers respiration, and so on. So uh, the baroreceptors are critical in the management of blood pressure, in the man- management of optimal cardiovascular functioning, and, and so on. And basically, this communication loop goes 
baroreceptor stimulus, vagus nerve, vagus nerve to brain, and then the, the necessary corrective measures are taken in order to restore biological balance in, uh, you know, as a result of ri- rising blood pressure. But within individuals who have corruption in their baroreceptors or weak baroreceptor interfaces with the brain and weak vagal tone or low vagal tone, you see that they have dysregulated blood pressure. They just can't get their blood pressure in check. Now, there was actually a, a very interesting study in 2014. It was in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, and it showed that controlled breathing exercises are a natural stimulus and strengthening mechanism for these receptors. And this heightens awareness within the cardiovascular system and also makes the cardiovascular system so much more pliable and elastic, more you know capable of change. And the more rigid your structure is, the more compromised um, it's likely to get. But the one thing that's very interesting about these baroreceptors, so you've got these receptors in, in you know, kind of the arteries of the body, they're interfacing with the vagus nerve, they're able to lower blood pressure, lower heart rate instantaneously through stimulation. But the most interesting thing about the baroreceptors is they interface directly with the center of the brain that is responsible for fears, anxiety, and emotional control, the amygdala. They actually interface directly. And slow. remember, slow breathing exercises stimulate, strengthen, enhance their functionality. And in fact, stimulation baroreceptors is a very, very effective tool for greater emotional stability and emotional integrity. And this may be why controlled breathing exercises are effective in treating depression and anxiety disorders. And that's according to the journal. Are you saying that if we breathe deep and, and slowly, and slowly, it will actually help us to reduce fear? It will reduce fear, reduce anxiety, reduce this depression. Sounds so simple. Sounds as Hashem put it in us. You know, he, he created all these safeguards. We don't have to look outside ourselves. We have to look within ourselves in order to manage what's going on. Everything is intrinsic. Amazing. That's the most – you need so little Incredible. in order to manage, you know, hostile circumstances. So all everything I've cited now was in the journal Frontiers in Psychology uh, three years ago. Now, so that's so. Now we've got the baroreceptors. That's that's the first thing that deep breathing exercises, uh, uh, you know, kind of activates and stimulates. But uh, controlled uh, breathing exercises also stimulate vagal nerve branches found just below the region of the diaphragm. So just the bottom of the ribs is the diaphragm, and just below that you've got thousands of branches um, of the they called terminal branches of the vagus nerve. And when you take deep breaths, there's expansion and contraction of the rib cage, and it stimulates these vagal connections, and they interface directly with the brain. And they affect mood and behavior very specifically. And there was actually an article entitled, now just hold on for this one, it's a very complex uh, title, Neuroanatomy of Visceral Nociception Vagal and Splanchnik <laughs> Afferent. Okay, so forget really? that title, it's gone now. But what my you point is. You have my, to quote it and yeah, you had to my, reference it. Exactly, I had to reference it. My, my point is that this article. Um, sites that the vagus nerve, these branches just below the diaphragm communicate direct with five major regions of the brain, including the emotional and memory centers. So just through the expansion of the ribcage, you're stimulating these lower vagal branches. They're interfacing with the brain, five major regions of the brain, controlling emotion, controlling you know, memory, controlling other uh, cognitive states and, and behaviors and emotional behaviors. So it's an exceptionally powerful stimulus. Mm-hmm. So we've got you know, the, the baroreceptor, we've got these vagal nerve branches sub-diaphragmatically, but there's more to the equation. There's the third mechanism, and this is also where it gets very interesting. And the third mechanism is something called the mechanoreceptor. So mechanoreceptors are tiny little stretch receptors, and in this case, they're located in the lung. And when we elongate lung tissue through deep, controlled breathing exercises, you find that these little stretch receptors are stimulated. They interface directly with the vagus nerve, which then lowers heart rate, 
lowers respiration rate and creates a state of biological balance and a state of biological uh, like uh, serenity and calm. So it's you know we're seeing the stimulus on multiple levels. We're seeing baroreceptors, mechanoreceptors, vagal subdiaphragmatic branches, all very complicated words. Um, but principally, the vagus nerve has the ability. I mean, you know, the deep breathing exercise has the ability to access the vagus nerve through three different ways. But according to Paul Lehrer, professor of occupational medicine at Rutgers University, not only does deep breathing exercises stimulate the vagus nerve, but it actually strengthens it as, as well. So the more you do, the stronger it gets, and the less you need, and the more resilient you get to hostile environments. So that's it just calm. It, it just it creates a sense of calm. So if you're doing multiple, you know, you're incorporating multiple activities that stimulate the vagus nerve, your control over the stress response is so much more robust. You're able to shut it down when it's not needed. And that's the big issue between good and bad stress. Good stress is short amounts of stress that can be turned off, the biological state that is. Bad stress is where you get exposed to stress, but you can't shut it down. It's ongoing. It becomes physically and emotionally exhausting and literally straining to the extent that it will manifest in disease. It will manifest in mental disorders, physical disorders, even a, 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 a reduced lifespan You know, to that extent. But fortunately, there's so many things we can incorporate to offset that and, and override it. And, and the first really is the incorporation of deep breathing exercises. That's amazing. I know somebody who did a 10-day silent meditation. Well, that uh, would be very challenging. Someone in your job especially. <laughs> Wasn't in my job. <laughs> That's really a silent meditation had. as a radio host. <laughs> Not going to happen. But uh, he was actually saying, because he went through the very, very rigorous um, training um, and he said that his 10-day uh, silent meditation helped him immeasurably, immeasurably to, yeah. to maintain the, state of the upper hand. Yeah, the upper hand mentally. So as long as he can carry that through into his life, that's great. But I find that, you know, especially when researching a lot of the studies on the alternate therapies, um, they normally go away for three months or they go away for, you know, if I went away for three months, I would have no stress in my life. And then they measure stress hormones, <laughs> you, you know. So yeah. so it's, it's sometimes it's unrealistic. So when you're removed from your environment and you're exposed to certain methodologies, can it translate? That's a big question. And what we're trying to do is create a practical model where your lifestyle doesn't change, but you can incorporate these into your lifestyle and you can, you know, see the effects within a short period of time. Now, the, the, the real challenging task is with so many breathing techniques, which one do you choose? You know, every there's there's experts in this field, and and all the experts have merit. You know, saying that their technique, their methodology is more effective. Um, you know, certain breathing cycles, uh, you know, have been shown in their body of evidence or their uh, stream of evidence to be, you know, uh, profound in in its effect. And this debate is not just amongst prof uh, uh, practitioners, but it's amongst scientists as well. So, so you're looking at at scientists battling it out in the literature as to which is the best control breathing exercise to facilitate an increase in vagal tone and calm the body down from this fight or fight slate state that can be so physically and, and emotionally exhausting. But fortunately, there's always a, a brilliant study that changes everything. And that study for me was in 2013 and it was published in the journal Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine. So it really took a critical look at deep breathing exercises, looked at a lot of the different methodologies and came up with a conclusion as to which of the methodologies was most effective. And obviously there had to be evidence, there had to be proof. So, right. I mean, that's the exactly. Title of it. <laughs> it's an evidence-based <laughs> complementary and alternative medicine. So, what's interesting about the study is that it, so it looked at you know all these different breathing rates. You know how many breath, certain number of breaths per minute. At, you know longer holds, longer exhalations, longer inhalations, and they're trying to establish 
which is the most effective protocol with the, within the context of vagal integrity, strength, tone, um, you know, to, to manage your health profiles. And they found it, it was a very, very simple finding. What they discovered was that if you breathe, if your breath rate goes down to five to six breaths per minute, you've activated the vagus nerve. It's that simple. You don't need to make it complicated. We normally breathe 12 to 18 breaths a minute. So you have to reduce your rate quite considerably. Hmm. Okay. But if you're breathing five to six breaths per minute, vagal tone is enhanced, the vagus nerve is stimulated, and you can gain a control over your state of anxiety, stress, depression, and so on. How much is that related to how fit you are physically? None. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. So you just your expansion might be a little bit better with higher fitness levels. Richard, we've got so many comments from our from our listeners. Let's let's okay, before, before we carry we on. on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. With pleasure. All right. So uh, thank you very much for this uh, message, um, Richard. What effect does malnutrition, medication, junk food, drugs, bad lifestyle have on the vagus nerve and stress? Great question. So, Thank you so much. I wish you had signed your name. So all of that amplifies a stress response. So it just it just makes it hot. It, it will compromise integrity of the vagus nerve. Your entire your nervous system will be compromised. Your immune system will be compromised. So so I think the, almost the answer is quite obvious there in that it, it does um, negatively affect stress. Um, in that your ability to shut down the stress axis is compromised. Your stress responses will be heightened to situations. Um, so if, uh, quite a significant uh, dysregulation, and also one has to understand there's another factor here is that stress corrupts or damages over time certain factors, uh, certain facets. So our cognitive integrity is disrupted by stress through a molecular channel. Our emotional integrity is corrupted by stress through chemical channels, and our physical integrity is corrupted by stress uh, through hormonal channels. And uh, if your lifestyle habits are particularly bad, it will just amplify that. So it will accelerate your trajectory towards disease and ill health as a result or consequence of stress. So as someone who's got better lifestyle practices, um, they they have a, a slightly larger buffer. How many breaths did you say we should take a minute to access? Five to six, but I'm going to expound on that. I'm going to give you the exact details on what to do. Okay, so how many breaths do we take per minute when we are sleeping? Um, <laughs> between 12 and 18. Between so 12 even and when we're sleeping? Yeah. So this has to be something conscious. Conscious. It's conscious activation. Absolutely. Okay. And we all know it intuitively. You know, we know that, you know, when we are feeling a little bit anxious or a little bit overwhelmed, what do we do? Take a deep breath. You know, the first thing we think of, take yeah. a deep breath. Okay. And remember that deep breath has just stimulated the subdiaphragmatic vagal branches. And it's interfacing directly with five regions of the brain. We, we've got game on, literally, in terms of, uh, you know, control over that state. But it, it, it's more than just one breath, and that's what I'm going to expand. Would certain... Uh, sports be better for stimulating the vagus, vagus nerve no, than you, others? No, you, you, you're brilliant. You're brilliant. <laughs> That's my next point today. Yes, there are some that are far more effective. Swimming. 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 You've got and to I'm hold gonna, your breath. You go, <laughs> exactly. So I'm going, to, I'm going to expound on swimming. That's after I'm going to just finish the, the last section. Okay, before the, we do that, we've got some other questions. Yes, yes. Um, also unsigned, uh, unfortunately, says, is it possible to access the vagus nerve by oneself, i.e. without un- outside intervention? Yes, So I think we're getting to so. that now. Yeah, so this is a breathing exercise is one way to activate, activate the vagus nerve. Um, light massage, believe it or not, on the throat. Very, very light tactile massage on the throat. A stimulus, in fact, there was a study that showed that light massage can offset um, potential seizures. So when, when, when those, those who are prone to seizures, when they start going into that state, light massage on the throat and stimulus 
stimulating the vagus nerve in that region can actually prevent a seizure. So there are studies which I, I didn't bring. I'm going to bring it in with the massage uh, part of this this component. But um, it's you can you can very very everything I'm I'm talking about. The two points I'm really bringing in today are are self management. You know, you don't have to go to someone to to have it managed for you. Fantastic. All right. The rest I'm going to leave yeah. until uh, just before we have to okay, wrap up. Okay. So let's. The, what is the perfect? So let, what is the perfect breathing practice? Okay. So and and for me it's all evidence based. I don't take anything anecdotal. I, I try and look at what the literature provides and and use that as a as a model. So there was a 2014 um, article and it was published in the International Journal of Psychopharmacology. And what it did, we know that five to six breaths per minute is the ideal model for vagal stimulation, but I want you to get specific. What were the exact inhalations? What were the exact exhalations? And was five, five and a half or six breaths a minute more effective? So what they did was they took 47 healthy individuals who performed either six breaths a minute or five and a half breaths a minute for a period of 12 minutes. That's the most important thing. That often when we do breathe, deep breathing exercises, we do it for too short. And that's why it doesn't have enough of an effect. So, exactly. Okay. If there's one thing that you remember from today's conversation, <laughs> this is it. You've got to take five to six breaths per, per minute, minute for 12 per... minutes. Exactly. So what they did is they looked at different inhalation, different exhalation patterns. And they, for example, they had a five-count inhalation, five-count exhalation. Uh, they then compared it to a four-count inhalation, six-count exhalation, and so on. So lots of different models looking at whether spending more time on the exhalation was more effective at stimulating the vagus nerve or spending more time on the inhalation or a balanced um, inhalation, balanced exhalation. And basically what they concluded in the study is that the greatest way to stimulate the vagus nerve with regards to deep breathing exercises was 5.5 breaths per minute at an equal ratio of 5 in, 5 out. 5 counts in, 5 counts out, which will equate, which would, the speed of which will equate to 5.5 breaths per minute. And that was the most effective way of activating the vagus nerve, strengthening its tone over time. Remember that we're stimulating baroreceptors, we're stimulating mechanoreceptors, all these subdiaphragmatic branches. We stimulate all these different mechanisms by which, you know, we can interface with the vagus nerve and calm our biological state or normalize our biological, biological state in response to stress. So if I were to say, how do you practically apply it? Go find a quiet spot. I wouldn't do it in a in a in a restaurant. You know, I wouldn't go to to you know Kosher Nando's and <laughs> during lunch <laughs> during lunchtime and and just sit there and try and do deep breathing exercises. Although but what you're saying though is that it is it can that be done portable. Anywhere. You can it, do it, it anywhere. Can you can anywhere. do it in your office. You can wherever it is. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I wanted to start with breathing. So find a quiet spot. You can sit upright or you can lie down. And what you want to do is you want to slow your breathing right down to, you know, five, five and a half breaths, five or even six breaths per minute. And you want to spend equal time in a, in, on the inhalation, equal time on the exhalation. And you want to do this for a period of 10 to 12 minutes. Okay. I want to do this. Once a day. <laughs> I want and to you do, do this. this I'm regularly. telling you I'm going to implement this. I think it is over, absolutely brilliant. Over time, the vagus nerve integrity will be enhanced. It will be strengthened. And your ability to adapt to stressful situations, your ability to cope, um, the ability to shut down this, this very robust and taxing axis will be enhanced. Right. So very simplistically, right? Five to six breaths per minute for 12 minutes. That works out to one in. Inhalation for f- for five seconds. For five counts. And one exhalation. Nice counts. and deep. Very simple. And you do so that that's according for to 12 minutes. Exactly. Now, this I'm giving you a platform to start. There are people who specialize in breathing. 
and who will give you even greater insight. Sometimes you incorporate a hold, and if you incorporate a hold, you activate something else. Okay, so holds can also be effective, holding your breath, because that activates chemoreceptors. But I don't want to get into that right now. That's another type of gas receptor. It also builds up the muscle in your lungs. Exactly. So sometimes holds are not too bad. But within the context of the vagus nerve strengthening its integrity, this was found to be most effective. It sounds so simple. It sounds so simple. But I'm going to bring in something else, and I'm going to bring in swimming. Okay. Now, swimming, for me, swimming has the greatest potential to, to manage stress, overcome that stressful state. There's almost nothing, in my opinion, that has the power that swimming has in managing stress. And the reason why with anything of substance is multifactorial. It accesses the vagus nerve through multiple channels, but principally through something known as the diving reflex. So this basically, it's a safety reflex. So the minute we submerge ourselves or hold our breath underwater, whatever biological state we are in, override because it's our survival at stake. So basically, how we calm the system down when we submerge is through the vagus nerve. So the diving, submerging in water will activate the vagus nerve in, in its entirety, that will override whatever state you're in, no matter how stressed you are. And what they've shown is that through the vagus nerve, submerging yourself in water can actually lower heart rate by 25% in, in a period of no time whatsoever. So if your heart rate's 150, within a period of seconds, your heart rate will go down to 112, 115 beats a minute. So that's quite remarkable. And as one would expect, you know, when we're young, the diving reflex is robust, it's strong, you're being underwater, you know, it, you're not, you don't get panicky, you don't, it's, it's strong and it's, and, it's, and it's vital. But as we get older, it gets worse and worse. And this is why when you start swimming, your dive reflex is not that strong. So actually in the beginning, you don't see the translation into improved management of stress because you have to strengthen that reflex. But what's interesting about the dive reflex is it's so complex, you know. So this, this reflex that basically ensures our survival underwater, you know, should we be there for, for an extended period of time. And the best, the, probably the best explanation of this very, very complicated reflex was in 2009 in an article published in the journal Applied Physiology. And what they described was that this is how mir miraculous the body is. I mean, every day it just it shocks you and surprises me. Is that when we submerge ourselves underwater, the first thing that happens is not a calming of the body, not a lowering of heart rate, lowering of respiration. The first like thing my body going to shock. Exactly. You are 100% <laughs> right. The first thing that happens is you go into a state of fight or flight. Your stress <laughs> axis right. is activated, but very, very briefly. And the reason why it was determined is that all the lung oxygen reserves – and blood reserves in the body go to the heart and go to the brain. And once they're in the heart and the brain, then the system shifts into the vagus gear. So it, it got you, you, the vagus nerve is activated. And then what you find is the presence of this, this calm uh, biological state, you know, that, that, that facilitates, you know, kind of a, a tremendous amount of balance, but it is there as a conservative entity. You don't, you don't want to use a lot of oxygen. You don't want to use a lot of energy. You, you want to be in a, in a state where you could survive uh, if, should there be, you know, a long period of time underwater. And there's two distinct mechanisms by which the diving reflex operates by. So when you go underwater and the vagus nerve is activated, activated by two different different ways. One is those specialized receptors in the arterial system, those baroreflex receptors. And the other is the holding breath, the chemoreceptors. Remember I said in some breathing right. exercises. So chemo chemoreceptor stimulation 
normally occurs when oxygen levels decline. So the longer you're underwater, the more you stimulate chemoreceptors and the more the vagus nerve is activated to keep your state from using, you'll keep your body from using too much energy or, or you know, Gosh, being can overly you imagine these deep water divers? <laughs> Unbelievable vagal Imagine time. the, Unbelievable. Yeah. wow. Now, if you are to strength, increase that dive reflex, this protective reflex that keeps us alive in these challenging situations, if there's any movement, the vagal, the vagal tone, the vagus activation is far greater. So if you're swimming underwater, all of a sudden the vagal tone, vagal tone is amplified so dramatically. There was a study on, on vagus activation and movement holding your breath underwater, basically swimming underwater. And instead of looking at a 25% reduction of heart rate, what the study found was in 30 seconds you had a 50% reduction of heart rate by holding your breath and moving underwater because of the vagus nerve, because of the strong activation of the vagus nerve. So if your heart rate getting into the pool was 150, within 30 seconds underwater you're looking at 75 beats a minute. <laughs> Order has been restored no matter what state you're in. And also there's another factor is, is that you, you have to ask yourself the question is, I, I personally, I hate cold water. I can't get into cold water. I mean, I'll get into it, but I, 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 under protest. But some people <laughs> are so addicted to cold water. Yeah. And the, there's a very, like a very significant Even biological, biological mechanism and reason <clears throat> for this. The reason for this is that cold water contact around the forehead, the eye region, and the mouth is a stimulus for a nerve in the face called the trigeminal nerve. And the trigeminal nerve and the vagus nerve are partners in crime. When one is activated, the other is activated. And just cold water in and around the face activates the vagus nerve to such an extent it literally puts you in a state of balance and euphoria instantaneously. It is exceptional. In fact, cold facial immersion, you know, cold packs on the face, you know, just splashing cold water on your face, one of the most effective ways of activating the vagus nerve. Um, you know, cold, getting into super cold water in itself is, is you know, just before you, the hyper stress. So it's not, it's not the, Shows the you how intuitive that is. When you want to feel better, you know, if you're not feeling well or you're feeling sleepy, what do you do? You go and you splash cold water on your face. Exactly. It's, it's intuitive. Exactly. So we, we, we in, intuitively we know all of these like we've we've migrated to all these habits and patterns, but but you know it's just putting it in in a construct where we can incorporate this in almost like a, a you know a, a very structured um, and and easy to apply model that that's 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 the key you know instead of a random cold splash of water it would have to be a little bit longer it would be a bit and the water temperature has to be at a certain level to to evoke a very strong response but but principally. The dive reflex, which is activated when we submerge ourselves in water, is one of the strongest vagal activators or overrides whatever state we're in, irrespective of the time, the space, the intensity of that, you know, whether how much stress we're having. And um, it's, it's, it's through multiple channels. One is through chemoreceptors, which are those gas receptors in the bloodstream. The other is through the baroreceptors, pressure receptors in the arterial system. And if the water is cold, then you've got a nerve that gets involved stimulating the vagus nerve. There are three different channels. But you also have to look at the very nature of swimming. It's aerobic exercise. Aerobic exercise in itself is really good for stress. And the breathing is exceptionally rhythmic. So you're having this very patterned rhythmic breathing. And those add an extra dimension or certainly an extra weight to the effect that, that swimming has. But just remember, when first getting into a pool, it's not going to be um, that easy, you know, because the, the dive reflex is weak. And it takes time to establish. It takes weeks, if not months, to actually strengthen and, and fortify its integrity before you start be seeing persistent. a major change in, in our, our biology and our health. But, you know, just bringing in a study on, on the effectiveness of swimming through the 
these mechanisms. There was a, it was a research team from the University of South Carolina, and what they did was they published a study on all-cause mortality risk, comparing swimmers, runners, walkers, and sedentary men. So they were looking for the best sport. <laughs> so, so they were looking at basically which activity promotes the best health, and the study was enormous. It involved forty thousand five hundred forty-seven men, uh, broad age range, twenty to ninety years old. They examined these individuals over thirteen years. How they collected the data, I'll, I'll never understand. In the study, what they did is a comprehensive multivariable analysis. So, so they performed on the group, um, you know, just to make sure that the, the data, you know, was not corrupted by any additional factors. And that analysis included age, body mass index, smoking status, alcohol intake, medications, family history of disease, medical history, you know, look, looking at as many factors and variables as possible so that the results were true. And after all the adjustments were made, they found that swimmers had the lowest risk of premature death within that group, by far, but, but by a long shot. When they compared swimmers in this 13-year period, remember 40,000 over study, 40, hey? long, a long study, a lot of people, they compared swimmers to sedentary men. They found that they had a 53% lower risk of premature mortality in that 13-year mm. follow-up period. That's enormous. But at the same time, it's not surprising because anyone who exercises promotes health. You know, it, it's health exercise is health promoting. Um, and you see that like, just aerobic exercise on a regular basis will, will have a certain protective effect. But where it was surprising is when they compared swimming to walking and running, there was a 50% lower incidence of premature mortality against walkers and 49% lower incidence of mortality within that 13-year follow-up when compared with runners wow. and you would never have expected it so obviously what they wanted to do was have a look no, at I would the have health expected it. <laughs> <laughs> how, sorry some runners you can see they're struggling a little no, bit running to a very health right in <laughs> but so 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 here we so what they did is they wanted to find out what it was well how come these swimmers had this incredible longevity and low risk of, of disease in this follow-up period so what they did is they looked at their health profiles they looked at resting heart rate their total cholesterol triglycerides fasting glucose everything and when they compared it to sedentary men and walkers uh, what they found was it vastly improved. So the whole biological profile was, you know, all their health markers better than walkers, better than sedentary individuals. Not surprising. They then compared it to runners, and there was no difference in, in groups. They both had the same biological or health markers at, at the same level. They were both very positive. And the only explanation for why swimmers had greater longevity, lower risk of disease, was through vagal tone. And the, degra- the greater degree of vagal, vagus nerve activation through the swimming mechanisms, you know, the things, uh, all the things I've just des- uh, described now, baroreflexes, chemoreflexes, rhythmic breathing, uh, and then this trigeminal cardiac reflex as well. So all these complicated names and terms. So what is the practical application? Because it's always about that. Before we get to that, right, one of our listeners, Ilana, thank you, Ilana, is calling you. She's yes. saying, when you swim underwater, you are surely breathing out and not holding your breath. Now, this was actually the way that I was taught to swim, is that when you're swimming, you take a breath, right, you go under the water, and as you are doing whatever stroke you're doing, you breathe out. So that's, that's a very good point. So it is a good point. It Thank a, you. It's a, it's a great point. So if, you, if you're underwater for 10, 15 seconds, you'd probably do that. If you're underwater for a 25-meter length or uh, a little bit longer than that, um, you would have to hold your breath to a certain point and then start breathing out. Um, so it just depends on the duration that you're underwater, but wh- whatever the case is, you're not breathing for that period of time, and that's considered breath holding, even though it's a slow exhalation. Fantastic. Okay. But it's a that great explains. question. Thanks, Alana. Thank you. Um, Unsigned says, does lying in a tepid bath also do this? <laughs> and that is such a good question. I would have asked that myself. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> because that is actually very relaxing. No, so so both. You know, Although it does not really going to influence your, no, your it's, breathing. It's, it's not. You know, so I think if you're submerging your head in a cold bath, maybe you you've got you, you're going to have a vagal stimulation. But but cool. I don't. I, I, I actually <laughs> anticipated this question. But but a bath is not going to have the same. You have to be under the water in order to evoke these res- uh, responses, and the water has to be cold to really further amplify it. And you have to be moving. So if unless you know unless you like my 16 week son who can swim in a bath you know it's um, unless you're moving in the bath and you're underwater you go, you know coming up periodically and rhythmic breathing and um, it's not going to have the same effect it's very relaxing and calming um, causes muscle relaxation and the muscle relaxation can lower cortisol so it's, it can be very effective in managing stress and we always feel better after a bath but in terms of vagal Activation and the ability to amplify and strengthen our response to stress um, in, in the terms of shutting it down, it's it's not uh, it's not something I would advocate. You know, okay. as, as a optimal mechanism. We are running out of time. In fact, we have run out of time, oh Richard Sutton. Uh, just bottom line: bottom five line. to six breaths per minute for twelve minutes. For twelve minutes. Every day. And try and get to the pool. And persist with it. Yeah. So if you can, try and, you know, if you're going through a lot of stress in your life, try, if you know, if you have got access to aquatic facilities, uh, if your fitness levels are, 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 you know, acceptable and decent, you don't even have to be super fit. You know, you can just uh, kind of paddle in the pool, so to speak. If you have got the time, try and have a, a session or two a week in the pool just to amplify the effects of the breathing exercises. Um, a quick splash might not be enough. You know, there was a study just looking at whether 15 minutes, 30 minutes and 60 minutes of, of swimming could activate the, the vagus nerve. They found that, you know, from 30 minutes was the most effective means by which you can strengthen vagus tone, vagal tone and activate the, the vagus nerve. So there is a certain time on it, you know, so don't don't just pop in for two, three minutes, you know, just, just uh, spend a little bit of time. But you might need to build up over an extended period. You know, a lot of people are not, uh, it took me a long time to, to be able to in longer than 30 minutes. So. Richard Sutton, thank you very, Thanks very much for once me. again coming in and sharing your expertise. By the way, have you read Malcolm Gladwell? Yes, I have. You read all of his books. Uh, Outliers. Outliers sure. was flawed. Was it flawed? It was flawed, unfortunately. Don't say that because I was going to term you the Malcolm Gladwell of health management because you see these different patterns and you see, yeah, that's that's really what it is. And then you bring us brilliant. the studies and the information. <laughs> uh, under those circumstances, it was brilliant. But that was, you know, it was yeah. a compliment. And no, thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. And, uh, yeah, we'll do something in the new year. Yes, yes, yes. Looking Thanks very, for very me. forward to it. That's uh, okay. Richard Sutton, uh, S-U-T-T-O-N. And if you want to access more information about him, we've done a lot of shows together on health management. Then get to his website, Sutton Health, S-U-T-T-O-N, health.co.za. You can also access all the podcasts that uh, Richard has done via the Chai FM website, which is like C-H-A-I-F-M.com. Click podcasts and go to Diskem Medical Monday. This has been Diskem Medical Monday. My name is Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me. God bless. We'll see you next week. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Diskem, pharmacists who care.